Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. I was fascinated to see you spent quite a bit of time in the early part of your career living in the Northern Territory. Mm. That's right. How long were you there for? I was only just under two years, but it was an incredibly informative process uh, and period of my life. I was on a place called Groot Island, uh, where I'd gone a couple of days after my 17th birthday to begin employment as a cleaner <laughs> on a manganese mine on Groot Island in the Gulf. But the really significant thing that happened is that I was um, introduced to and eventually, in a sense, suppose adopted by the Anangaliakwa people. He took me under their wing as a young man and looked after me and developed not only lifelong friendships but also kinship ties that persist to this day. Did you really get a sense of that they have a very different view of reality and, and, and universe and, and, and decision making? Yeah, in both in almost metaphysical terms and in some obvious ways. So yeah. there's a whole world view which uh, sees every single person intimately connected to every other thing uh, on the earth. So the world that we encounter is not of an inanimate uh, set of things like rocks and stones, but a stone or a hill can have spiritual significance. It can have significance in terms of stories. And in fact, you are related to everything. Um, uh, within the moiety, you might be part of, you'll be related to animals and plants and, and places. So there's that sense, but there's also one of the really interesting things I was taught to do was how to see differently. So right. typically I would have um, thought that when I look for something, I look for a discrete object, like we've got two glasses and a jug on the table where we're sitting. And they might say, can you see the jug? And you'd look for the jug and you'd say, yes, I can see it on the table. I remember being at the end of a wharf when they took me out to ask uh, if I knew how to see dolphins in the water. And I said, I can't see any dolphins. And they said, no, no, there, 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 there's a dolphin. I said, I can't. And they said, ah, the trouble is you're looking for dolphins in the water. And what they wanted to teach me to do instead was to understand that you don't see the world as discrete objects but as patterns. Right. And there's a pattern that the water makes without any dolphins in it. And there's a discrete pattern it makes when there's a dolphin in it, and you learn that pattern. And I've spoken to other Indigenous people who've described the same sort of thing about there's a pattern that the bush makes without something in it, and then the, the pattern it makes when the thing is in it. And so you see the whole of the thing by doing that. So it, I, I still haven't completely mastered it. <laughs> uh, they're so good at seeing things, but I, I sort of began to get better at how you see those sorts of things. I'm having a, well, a glass of water uh, with uh, Dr. Simon Longstaff, who's the Executive Director of the Ethics Centre uh, in Sydney, Australia. Uh, he's also the chair of the uh, infamous Intelligence Square debates in Sydney and the founder of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. Co-founder. Ah, oh, co-founder, mm. yes. Simon, it's great to, uh, to sit down and catch up. It's a pleasure to be able to do so, Mark. Now, listen, I, I've been fascinating reading this report you just brought out, uh, which is, I guess, really designed to give some principles for uh, leaders and organisations to get better at making ethical decisions. Mm. Particularly uh, around technology. Particularly around technology. Yeah. And, and it, it feels like this is a really good time to be talking about this because, you know, strangely enough, 
making good decisions is becoming harder at a time when we're talking about automating more decisions. Mm. Uh, it, it sort of it, it sort of actually adds a layer of complexity on, on what it means to be ethical. Well, the fact the decision to automate something is a decision in itself. Yes, and one needs to own the implications of that. But it, it's I think we're at a point of um, potential civilizational change where the implications of new technological developments, uh, new geopolitical realities, new patterns of relationship are every bit as profound as the Industrial Revolution was when it first burst upon the world. But in a different political context, at least in countries like Australia, Britain, US and similar, where you have universal suffrage and people can actually cast a vote. <laughs> and that radically changes the calculation. And we've tried to turn our mind to the kind of ethical dimension to issues around technology, but we've tended to do it where you'll see people talking about data ethics or the ethics of AI or bioethics. And, and what we decided to do is to say, well, look, just a moment, are there some general principles that could be applied to any technology? Right. It might be consumer electronics, where you're sitting there trying to design some interface within the home, or it could be some radical change in the way in which we develop human beings through gene genetic engineering. And actually, especially because all of these technologies and platforms and devices are all interconnected in myriad ways Increasingly now. becoming so. Right. Uh, so the I mean, what, what is an iPhone except part of an ecosystem of devices and technology? But also you're seeing a blending now between biology and nanotech and right. uh, synthetic forms of biology. I mean, the, the intersection now between different forms of technology means that you can't just simply hive off one area and say it has its own special domain. Uh, and yet, one of the things we, we, we the claim we make in, in this paper is that if you divorce technical mastery from ethical restraint, then it, it basically always is at the roots of tyranny. And so we are becoming incredibly adept at technical mastery, but what then will we claim for ourselves to be the basis for any kind of ethical restraint that we might apply? And so what we thought is, well, look, let's come up with some principles, um, argue it as persuasively as we can, and then hopefully embed those, not just in some kind of abstract philosophical space, hmm. but show how could you make this practically effective so that you can have an impact in the world so that we get the best that we can from our technology and not limit ourselves to things because we're too afraid, too lacking in trust to harvest those benefits. I think it might be valuable because this is something you did in the paper as well. Um, is to really try to make concrete some of these terms we're using. What, what actually is ethics? And how, do they, how does it differ from values and principles? So ethics, uh, firstly, it's an old Greek word. And it's a, it's, if you like, it's a, it's a label for a conversation. So there are other old Greek words in philosophy. So if somebody is talking about the nature of beauty, they might say, oh, I'm discussing aesthetics. Or if they're saying, oh, I'm going to have a conversation about what is being or existence, I say, oh, yes, we're going to talk about ontology. So the word ethics performs the same role. It's a conversation not about those theoretical questions like truth, beauty or existence, but about a practical question. Whenever you hear the word ethics being used, it's an invitation to a conversation about the practical question, which is what ought one to do. So essentially, it's it, it's around the mechanics of decision making. It's around decision making and, and the effects of it. Right. So if you 
if you look around us here, we can see architecture, artwork, fashion, um, everything around us is a product of human choice. All of it could have been different, uh, different buildings. Say we're in Sydney here, where there's an iconic building, the Sydney Opera House down at Manalong Point, but it could have been a neoclassical building, which is typical of opera houses around the world. But it's not because somebody chose for it to be different. And the only thing that limits our choices are the laws of physics and then those other two components that you mentioned, our values and our principles. Right. So values emerge from a subsidiary question. After you've asked what ought one to do, you say, well, how do we decide? Well, people axiomatically choose the things which they think are good or better. Uh, if you're offered the difference between, say, an apple and an orange, the person who picks up the apple doesn't do so thinking it's worse. They just think it's better. We don't know why. Uh, but if they continue to do that, they might be to do with health benefits, colour. So being most, healthy is a value? It's a value. Right. So what is good, you say, well, these things are good. These are values. Hmm. And then you say, well, it's not enough to know what's good because there are some ways of getting things which are good, which are going to be totally destructive or whatever. So you need another question, which is what is right? And from <laughs> those come principles. So you might say, success is good. I know what it looks like. It's going to be, say, a gold medal in an Olympic event of choice. But I'm not going to cheat, cheat or lie or, <laughs> or defraud someone. Right. Instead, I'll be guided by principles. And so these principles that combine with values together provide you with the kind of DNA, if you like, for human choice. And once you know this, you can look at any time in history, at any culture, and you can look at the artefacts it produces and you can trace back and say, this was what they believed to be good, this is what they thought to be right, and look at what it produced. Without necessarily judging it from the point of view of our moral system. Mm. This framework of... I mean, elements of the Roman civilization could be considered very unethical unless oh. you viewed it through their own moral spectrum. Yeah, but they wouldn't have... Uh, they would have claimed that they had a framework. And the framework that I just described, that basic structure of what ought one to do then, values and principles. It's universal. It, right. it appears in every culture in every time. Its content changes. So the Romans would have had a different set of values and principles than somebody living, say, in equivalent period in China. Same with the Athenians, right? Uh, Unless you were actually a citizen, all of this stuff didn't apply to you. <laughs> but but what's, what's interesting about it is that when you start to look at this, the differences are not as great as one might believe. So often, to take a contemporary example from today, uh, most people in the United States of America, if you ask them to list their values and put them in some kind of order of priority, would have liberty really close to the top. I mean, the American people define themselves in these terms. They say that you can come and burn their flag and dance on its ashes and they'll hate it, but by God, you, know, you can do it because it's, it's liberty. If you go and put the same question to people in, say, China today, they'll prepare their list of values. They'll rank them in order of priority. And liberty is there, but it's not as high as it is in America because in China, the ordinary person in the street will say, no, something's more important, harmony or order. And they'll have various concepts for this. And so it's not as if the Americans and the Chinese cannot recognise each other's ethical universe. It's just that importantly, and it has real impact, they prioritise these things differently. The other, the other big, I guess, elephant in the room is, and we use this term all, this t all the time, but we mean very different things by it, is technology. Mm. And what I found very interesting was that 
when in your discussion, technology is not just an object. Right. Uh, it's not even just a system. It's actually a way of seeing the world. It actually modifies, uh, as you say, technologic, the, the way that we actually perceive uh, yeah. the world around us. Yeah, we, we're used to thinking of technology as the artifacts, but there's another uh, perhaps deeper tradition of thought around this notion of, it's got various names, but the one I use most often is calculative rationality. Right. It's, and it's a particular way that you can see uh, of ordering the world uh, in ways that can be measured, uh, manipulated, and it eventually, in I think some of its most destructive form, can even be applied to human beings in a way that perhaps the ancient Greeks would have recognised in some ways around slaves and things yeah. as a resource that can be manipulated or used like a lump of coal or something. And, and in fact, one of those uh, somewhat disturbing terms when you think about it, human resources, uh, carries something of that character. Yeah, I was even fascinated, you know, and this is something that I referred to recently, that you know, when, the, when the Roman army um, you know, was dealing with a group of troublemakers. They used the decimated decimation. Yeah. yeah, which is another sort of form of almost the kind of the reduction of human beings to a, really just a resource. Yeah, and, and aware effectively their intrinsic dignity doesn't matter. They, they're just a lump. What drives calculative rationality is uh, the need for certainty and certainty gained through control. And you see it emerging out of the basically the scientific revolution and the role of experimentation. And, and, and its biggest pivotal point, if you like, is with Descartes, when you go from an old world in which the assurance of certainty was provided by something like God, who was out there larger <laughs> and greater than yourself, and you say that's what makes the world certain, and Descartes, with that radical piece of scepticism he engages in, says, no, no, it's not that that makes me certain, it's the fact that I know that I exist, it's me and my awareness of my own existence, which is the groundwork for certainty. And calculative rationality builds out from that. So it's very much the self-certain subject, the human at the centre, seeking to exercise control over the world in order to make it certain. And then we build the things that give us that control. And that's the logic, the technologic, if you like, of calculative rationality at work. Can you be someone who embraces calculative rationality and still be ethical? Oh, yes, you can be, because you can you can be... Um, tempering this to some degree, you can be alive to its limitations. Right. You can be looking at without well, ending up like a tailorist, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. You don't uh, you don't want to end up like a tailorist. But of course, it, it it presents leaders with a particular challenge because they too are looking often for a certainty which is simply not available. And, and ethics, as it's at its core, defies this certainty because it lives with the realisation that in many circumstances there is no absolute right answer. So I'll take a really banal domestic example, but one that perhaps we can all relate to. Someone you love comes home and has been shopping for new clothes or they've got a new haircut or something like that. Anyway, they've, they've changed themselves and they present themselves to you and say, well, what do you think? <laughs> and, I know where this is going. Yeah, and you look at them and you think, oh, no. Now, you might be a person who believes in both truth and compassion in equal measures. And you know that if you tell this person the truth, you're going to hurt them. Now, it's theoretically possible 
to know if you, if you drew a kind of like a, a set of vectors with 10 units of truth pulling you to the right and 10 units of compassion pulling you to the left, that the net effect of that is zero. You are stuck. And this is one of the basic uh, facts about ethics, that there are some choices where there is in principle no right answer, yet you're still compelled to decide. You're still is this a wicked problem? To act. Yeah. When someone well, asks you how they look in their new haircut. Yeah, the senior leader, is, uh, uh, my answer is just give them a hug, you know, but it's... it's uh, <laughs> but but the, there are lots of people who find themselves in, in those situations, um, particularly where they're having to exercise leadership. I, I want to come back to how we operationalise some of this, yeah. but, but let's do a quick summary of, of, of these principles. And there's uh, seven, there's eight, right? Uh, do you want to just run, run us through them quickly? Well, first, and if you like, the kind of master one is that ought before can. The fact that you can do something doesn't, doesn't mean, you, mean should. That you should do it. Right. And this is really important because so many people exploring new frontiers in technology, say AI or whatever, say, oh, we'll, we'll just take the next step. Let's see what happens. We can do it. Somebody else can sort out the ethics. Uh, so we say, no, don't do that. Uh, just because you can do it doesn't mean you should. Non-instrumentalism. This comes back to the notion in which you recognise that human beings, that persons, have intrinsic dignity and they can never be simply used as a tool. So that's why we have or the prohibition as, against slavery, for example. Or as part of a system, even. Or as part of a system, yeah. Right. And so this, this has very big implications, for example, around things like autonomous vehicles. Hmm. Because most of the time people are trying to solve the so-called trolley car problems uh, to do with this by factoring the human beings in as something that the system has to take account of and solve for. Mm. But in fact, if you take them out of that, then you start to generate some radically new solutions to the problem by saying you can't have the system doing a kind of triage. And, 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 and the point of what is an acceptable loss is actually not the conversation to be having, right? Well, that's right. I mean, it doesn't mean you won't have to face up to some of those things, but there's a different way of seeing that problem. The closest we've come to finding it is some work that the Germans were doing, but it doesn't quite get to the solution that we recommend in relation to that. Uh, the third is around self-determination to maximise the freedom of those affected by your design. So if you're building a new technology, and, and I should say it, we're talking about putting all of this into the design. It's not something that you apply later on after the horse is bolted. Right. How do you design a barn and a horse which is going to be safe? So. You don't want to be building these technologies which are closing down options for people. You want to maximise their freedom to the greatest extent. So to to empower the user. Yeah, to empower the user and maintain their autonomy. Uh, a principle around responsibility. This is the fourth of the ones I've mentioned. And this is the hardest, perhaps, which is about anticipating and designing for all possible uses, which includes in some ways perhaps foreclosing on certain uses because just because you can't imagine, you say there's some things I'll rule out, so the inappropriate use. So uh, one... Like the edge cases. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Now, this is a very tough thing to do, as we, as we acknowledge, because uh, how do you design for something that you can't imagine? Well, what it does is you therefore take a slightly more conservative view about what would allow something to be triggered, used, deployed, whatever, in that case. I guess the, the, a good example of that is... You know, is um, uh, the decision by the drone manufacturers to use geotargeting to stop their drones being used in certain areas. Yep, that's the kind of thing you can do. Or you could see somebody um, a man using fingerprint activation for certain devices, which could be lethal in the hands of 
wrong person to say, oh, well, I'll do that and I'll have a chain of custody around right. it so that I can do that. In fact, we think being able to track the whole story of a, an artifact from its uh, original design, its manufacture and its use through things like blockchain um, is potentially a very, very powerful way of trying to guard against some of these unintended outcomes. Mm. Net benefit, maximising good, minimising bad. Um, it's not that you just do a complete moral trade-off, but you know, you're, you're actually actively trying to minimise some of the unintended negative effects mm -hmm. to the extent that you can while maximising the good. Notions of fairness, uh, the six of the ones I mentioned, treat like cases in a like manner and different cases differently. Actually learn how to discern the circumstances of the potential use of this, the user and their own attributes, the environment within which this might be deployed, and make fair choices in which you take into account relevant considerations that others might just pass over. Right. Accessibility, so we want to include accessibility to technology to reduce as far as possible the evolution of technological ghettos. Uh, we're not just talking there about socioeconomic conditions, there'll be people who have vulnerabilities in relation to certain technologies. The vulnerable users' circumstances should be taken into account. And last but not least, uh, design with purpose in mind. Um, it's a very old idea going back again to the Greeks, but design with honesty, clarity, and with regard to the fitness of purpose for what you're making. Now, these are not things which you should say, oh, I'll pick a little bit of this and a little bit of that. The intention here is that this should be a package of principles which are taken on and the designer, the technologist, the computer programmer, through to the manufacturer and then the marketer must seek to give effect to this whole suite consistently in what they're making. What we're not saying mm. is precisely how to do it right. because we think you need to lead uh, people to a point where they exercise their own autonomy as a designer. But we'd simply say to you, if you want to be in this ethical technology space, you can do it however you like, but you must be able to give an account of the decisions each of these made. principles are present in the thing that you've designed. You know, one of the things that, I, that occurs to me as I think about how people would operationalize this is that uh, there is two, there's two things operating here. One is uh, the design and conceptualization of a product or platform. Mm -hmm. and, and clearly, this is sort of an extension of the design thinking approach where you're, how do you bring in a diverse number of, of people and stakeholders to have conversations about the potential uses of or, or the applications of something but at a bigger scale there's the, the idea of corporate culture yeah and you know this it's not just a once-off decision when someone builds a product there, there are countless small decisions trade-offs i guess ways of even talking about things that are actually encoded in in a, in a company yeah absolutely uh, how, how do you how do you bring that to life i mean when you look at a company like amazon i mean they they have a set of uh they have a set of uh, principles uh, and some of them are ethical, but others, others are more really just about how to approach problems. Yeah. So in the best of possible worlds, what you find is a, an alignment from, if you like, whichever way you think about top or bottom, whether it's a foundation or a, an apex, between a notion of purpose, values and principles, and then everything else that's done. Uh, we do work uh, with organizations large and small where we seek to apply a process called Everest, right. the Everest process, 
And all we're doing when we're doing that is a diagnostic process to measure the gap between what you say you are and what you actually are. Right. And the reason we do it is because all of the evidence shows that the greatest risk to organisations is when their own people and their stakeholders perceive them to be hypocrites, where they say one thing and do something else. Because then people say, well, if they don't believe it, why should I? It becomes like a broken window. Yeah. Right? And yeah. they start to pursue their own interests or of some other group. And you're right, like Wells Fargo, Enron, they all had corporate statements talking about ethics oh, and community right. values. And, and and then they would find loopholes to get around their own commitments right. because that was the shadow values or shadow principles that work within the organisation. So this gap had opened up. And, and this, this affects marketplaces. So even the customers of corporations no longer judge the ethics of a corporation by their own direct experience. It's relevant, but they also say, well, how do you treat each other in that organisation? How do you treat your suppliers? How do you treat anybody who's a key stakeholder? If you were going to diagnose a, a, technological, a technology company like Facebook and the issues they've been having, do, mm. do you think that goes to culture? Uh, or, or do you think it's just a breakdown in the design process? Well, it's both. You see, a lot of people uh, fail to understand that culture is an artefact and it uh, produces artefacts. But beneath that, there are this the work of the values and principles is the kind of DNA producing these things. And part of what it's producing is not just a set of behaviours that you can see, the, the conversations people have, the choices they make, but also the systems, policies and structures which emerge out of this culture. And so when we're do, applying the Everest process, we're looking at what people say they experience, but we're also bringing a forensic gaze to bear in terms of system, policy and structure. So you can get a Facebook and I don't know Mark Zuckerberg, I don't know exactly what he says about all sorts of issues, but let's assume for the sake of argument that he truly believes what he says and acts personally in a manner that's consistent with the kind of commitments that Facebook has made. But if at the same time there are systems, policies and structures driving people to operate in a manner which is inconsistent with what he's saying, then his own employees, his own colleagues are going to look at it and say, well, you must have known. Hmm. You're, the, you're the boss. You're responsible for this. You, you can't wash your hands. So this must be a reflection of what you truly believe. And so he might be saying things, doing things which are right, but people are applying it almost as he walks past. Every time he goes, someone hooks onto his T-shirt, little sticker that says hypocrite, hypocrite, hypocrite. And they lose faith in it, and like any institution, it begins to crumble because it's it's broken, if you like, its own internal consistency. You know, one of the things that really jumps out at me in, in your list of um, principles is non-instrumentalism because mm. it strikes me as sort of goes to the heart of one of the biggest dilemmas with the rise of machine learning and data. Yeah. In that it's, it, it seems that it's inevitable for these systems to get better and smarter and more useful for us we have to feed in all the data about our behaviours, how we interact, and often in a way that is not particularly transparent. Yeah, well, some of these systems, particularly uh, these unsupervised neural networks and various ways they're described, will gobble up data, data, they'll make various associations, and they will do it in a way that no one can actually Explain even the design of the system exactly the right. precise process. So there's massive issues to do with accountability of that, particularly when governments deploy it. Because if you're a government in say a democratic society, mm. not all societies are democracies, but those where they are, they expect their governments, their government ministers, to be accountable. But if the minister 
simply cannot explain because no one can explain what this thing is doing other than it is producing results. There's a very fundamental question for democracies as to how to make sense of this because until now in an analogue world there was some kind of cause and effect right. chain that you could... Un- Even fix. a traditional algorithm is like a yeah, recipe. You can read it. But, yeah. I mean, there's already been cases with uh, teachers in uh, in Houston uh, who were ranked by an algorithm no one understood or... Uh, uh, predictive policing, yeah. sentencing guidelines, laced but, with but, bias. But does this mean that we should, you know, take the foot off the accelerator of these technologies and... I mean, because I don't even know if it's just a question that at some point we will understand these systems. Intrinsically, we no. may not be able to. We may not be able to. But I think what we need to do then is fully interrogate what it is they are meant to do. Right. And then put what, in these... Or what, what they're optimised for. Yeah. But also, to, this is why this notion of ethical restraint uh, is there. It's not that you don't do things, because there are too many potential benefits that could be squandered by saying, well, we'll be uh, like the Luddites, you know, we'll just go and break all this, the frames and things like that. It's, it's more about saying... Now, we can recognise the potential benefits, but not at any cost. And the ethical costs of, say, reducing a person to being just a cog in a machine where uh, they, they give up their data and there's no real benefit or you don't need their consent or any of the other things that could come if these principles were to be violated means that you incur an unnecessary degree of cost and then impose risk on the system. So, I mean, I'd like people in some sense to say these principles sound reasonable things to do. But I'd also think that some are going to say, actually, I'm an investor, and if I get a chance to invest in technology that's got these principles built into it, then I'm only doing it because I'm self-interested. It, it takes a lot of the long-tail risk out of my yeah. my operation. So maybe I'll do it for that reason. Either way, I, I just don't want us to have technologies spooling up, which we can't in any way control, where people wash their hands of any responsibility, irrespective of the harm that might be done. It definitely feels like we're at a crossroads um, Mm. between this one view of an algorithmic future in which these technologies augment and empower us and uh, extend ourselves and our identities. And there's another where, as you said, we end up in this sort of tailorist nightmare where all of our actions are uh, measured, uh, quantified, and we're nudged into behaving without really our own understanding. Well, we're seeing some of it. Both worlds are possible. Social credit in China at the moment, um, you can step out of line literally and be scored for doing so you know, with the use of facial recognition and a whole series of algorithms that can restrict your access to certain forms of transport. That's one world. And there's other, another world where you've got IBM Watson currently um, able to diagnose certain forms of cancer with a far greater accuracy than any human being. Uh, of course, what it cannot do is tell you that you have cancer in any way that that is similar to a human being, where a doctor can say, I'm sorry, Mike, you've got cancer, and you know that they are also mortal. They know what it means to be told that there's something that could threaten your life, and no machine can do that because they don't understand mortality, and the best you think they could do is pretend it. Maybe they could be to a point where they could sort of have a kind of Turing machine convincing approximation of it. But at the moment, we're not there. So. You've got this dystopian world, which people tend to focus on. You've got a utopian world. And then you've got the world which will be produced by our choices. And that's the point about where we are now. We, we really do have an opportunity to make some choices, not just about the technologies, but also their implications. So in a country like Australia, in 10 years' time, we'll probably be 
less people working in banking than there is today. So we're talking about a major, major dislocation, what, 100,000 people perhaps, uh, mainly middle class, dislodged from their current employment. And there is not going to be in that time frame enough artisanal baking and brewing to soak them up. So we need to start thinking, how do we make this transition one which is just and orderly? Very rarely is it. Most transitions in what about by technology are fairly brutal and chaotic. Um, so how do we think about it? If you're running a corporation, are you thinking about what you could do in terms of the speed of the implementation and the savings? What are the social implications? What are the implications for the organisation if you did all of those things? How do you bring your mind to bear in terms of addressing these questions? You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds. Thank you.